This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Ahoy, and welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, and I am really excited to welcome back a guest from earlier in my show, because I learned a lot then, and I'm excited to learn a lot now. It is Ben Blackwood. Wow, how did I mess that one up immediately? Ben Blackwood. So sorry. Hi, Ben. Ooh. Hello. <laughs> that was eloquent of me. How are, how are things going in not the state of Texas where the allergens are plentiful? It's going good. It's getting warmer. So it's that, that nice time of year again. So, yeah. I'm doing a, a newsletter for the skate shop I work at. And the, like the first thing I'm doing is it's getting warmer because it it is definitely that time of the year. Because there is that weird period where it's like it bakes you out for a while. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, definitely starting to get onto that warmer side now. But uh, yeah, hopefully it stays like that. Me too. Well, uh, people who listen to the show know that I normally ask for your Titanic story, but I already asked you for yours in the last episode. So if anybody wants to hear it or hasn't heard it before, please go back and listen to that one because I don't want to do too much recapping because Ben has said he has found more information since about almost a year ago when we last talked about, you know, Harlan and Wolf and White Star Line, which is an area of my personal knowledge that I very much neglect and I, I, I should probably remedy that, but... What did you find out? Where do you want to? Where do you want to start with this? I'm I'm just so excited. At literally anywhere off your like list. Is... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, research now is more sort of gone towards Belfast as well. And, you know, yes, because you were just there, right? Yeah, came back. Uh, I was there last weekend up there for the uh, Night to Remember event at Titanic Belfast. Ooh, where they... How was that? It's incredible. It's a really good evening. Yeah, you go across to the uh, start at the museum. And then you go across opposite to where the new hotel is, which was the old drawing offices. Right. And you meet Thomas Andrews and he tells you his story about what he used to do in the shipyard. And then you go across to Nomadic, which was the last surviving White Star ship, the tender that was at Sherberg, where you meet Madeline Astor. <laughs> and, yeah, tell you all about the scandal when she married John Jacob Astor. Right. And then returning to New York. And then you just travel through the museum and you see other, uh, you meet Molly Brown. Uh, this year we met. Frederick, uh, Frederick Fleet, oh. and you also met the uh, the mother of Alfie, uh, Alfred Cunningham, who was on the Guarantee Group. So he was one of the ten Harland and Wolf shipyard workers that was given the opportunity to go on the maiden voyage. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah, you hear all their stories, and then at twenty to midnight, we went out onto the slipways where they have uh, a candle lit vigil, and you go and read the names off the panels where they had the two slips. So it's a really moving evening. I bet that. The vigil was incredible. Not that the rest of, it doesn't sound incredible, but just that taking the time to, you know, remember the gravity of the event. Absolutely. And I think this year was more people that stayed for the vigil than ever before. And I think it's becoming more and more a popular event. And people have started to realise how important this event mm-hmm. has been to Belfast um, and the impact that it has. Because even today, the city is still in the shadow of the shipyard. Um, sure. You've got the two yellow cranes, Samson and Goliath, that were then on the world's largest uh, dry dock. Mm-hmm. And they just dominate the Belfast skyline. Wherever you are in the city, you'll see them. Wow. And particularly East Belfast is def- is in the shadow of the shipyard because that was where the uh, Queen's Island was built. Right, right. And you've got all of the murals and the statues to commemorate these workers and the event. Right. So, it's uh, left a lasting legacy. It seems as though as people get more and more interested in Titanic, people are also getting more and more interested in the people themselves and, and bringing that human touch back to the story. And that seems indicative with what you were saying about more people staying for the vigil than had happened in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, particularly with more documentaries that are being filmed um, mm. and more of these individual stories that are being told online. I think you start to see now a more um, genuine interest in the people rather than the event as well. I mean, the event is obviously of some, of some interest, 
But I think now more than ever, people are looking into the backgrounds of these stories of these people that were there. Um, And I think that's as equally an important story as well as the event. Agree. It is important to remember all the people involved because at the end of the day, it was the loss of thousands of people. Yeah, absolutely. And also how almost every country was affected by it as well. You know, it wasn't just... British and Americans, um, this story impacted, you know, it impacted everybody, everybody yeah. that was trying. It's um, a story of international intrigue in that way. Absolutely. And also, I think, you know, she's the ship herself as well is also a product of international cooperation. You have mm-hmm. uh, being built, built in Belfast, but you have a German crane, a floating crane used to help with construction. You then have the Royal Dutch Furniture Company. So it's and modelled on hotels all around the world as well. So it's very much, a, you know, it's not just a British ship mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I think that even in modern ships too, there's sort of, and especially now with like you think about a modern cruise ship, there's a lot more uniformity. I think people might argue that there's less elegance and charm or what have you, but both then and now, I think that there's... Uh, neglect and exactly how much time and effort goes into the design element it's not just the engine construction that's impressive about ships it's how much time people and companies give to thought about no you don't want this to be that far from that location guests aren't going to want to travel long distances between those two locations but they're more than happy to travel longer distances back to their staterooms or things of that nature having discussions about the layout and then the design elements is um, a large part of building the entire experience yeah absolutely and yeah looking at the designs for titanic in particular every minor detail was documented and drawn and thought about um and it was uh such a slow process right but then when you see what the end product was you can see why. And you look at the clientele that they were targeting. The White Star motto was always luxury over speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and passenger experience was the most important thing to the White Star line. Right. So the ships had to be built to that degree to be able to fit that vision that they had. Well, it makes sense. Um, as we've talked about a few times on the show, uh, Cunard's claim was to speed and you know white star knew that they didn't have the ability to really compete with them in those terms so doubling down on luxury was their signature touch that you know white star service absolutely but i mean you know these ships weren't slow by any means either no no sorry the implication <laughs> wasn't that they were slow but, no no you know. but I, I see what you, i get what you're saying i think as well that they could compete as well with cunard that yeah it's like, yeah, listen, yeah. we can't be as fast as them because, like, they've got whatever magic speed bullet that Cunard's got. We're fast enough, but let them have their baby, baby extra knots. We're just gonna make it way nicer. Absolutely. And it's a it's a fair approach in my in my opinion, and I think it's a logical one. If if, if you know you that you're not going to be able to beat your competitor in that particular area because you can't just meet them necessarily in order to steal that claim to fame. It has to then be like, we've surpassed you. If you know that you're going to be unable to do that, it's really smart to just say, well, they're doing luxury okay, but we're going to do luxury great. Definitely. And you think about the money that it costs to build these ships. But- I don't want to. It's nauseating. This, I mean, Titanic cost seven and a half million pound to build. In At 19- the time. And it, that was in 1912. I'm going uh, to look that up. A further insurance of five million on that. So. You okay, want... so uh, what was, I'm going to, I'm going to do it in dollars just because it might be close enough because I can't, but what was that number again? So it was 7.5 million pound. <laughs> All right, let's see. It's basically two some billion dollars. It won't let me go high enough to do million for some reason on here. It's only letting me do thousands, so I'm doing a weird calculation that's probably wrong. 
I mean, for the time, she was the most expensive liner to be built. That's an uh, incredibly crazy amount of money. You had to think about passenger experience in order to get that money back into profit. I, I, it's just, it isn't. Yeah, I did the math crazy wrong in case anybody was wondering. It's $225 million, which is still a ridiculous amount of money. Sorry, in case anyone thought I was bad at math before, I really am now. I found an actual ca- calculator that lets me do billion. I mean, million. Good grief. But yeah, it is a it is an incredible amount of money then and now. I just I just wanted to do that for the fun of it. But you're right in that it does show. And I'm also sure that, it, that you know, Mauritania and Lusitania weren't exactly budget ships. I don't, you know. No, uh, but it helped when they were being financed by the British government. Um, uh, well, yes. So. And the loan payback scheme as well was very uh, loosely defined that it benefited Cunard, that they weren't having to fork out loads of money in reparation in repayments uh, straight, off, uh, straight away. You know, you're starting to see a profit on these ships before they were then starting to pay back the government loans. What a good deal. But then I suppose in the same way, the White Star Line benefited as well because the agreement was made that JP Morgan could buy the White Star Line mm-hmm. uh, if in times that Britain would ever go to war, these ships could be recalled for military service. And um, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, you look at Olympic, you look at Britannic, Britannic not even entering um, transatlantic service. Not yet. Um, But then the flip side of that was that at least 75% of the crew had to be British as well. So that also then helped further tensions because the German government then responded in turn saying that all German round liners have to have 75% of their crew being of German origin. So it's... uh, Just doubling down interesting time yeah i there's a lot of stuff back then that just wouldn't fly now or you wouldn't be able to openly discuss like that no and uh i think when you look at it as well when the plans for these ships um like when they built the thompson Dra- uh, graving dory dock over in belfast it was also part funded by the Admiralty with the expectation that Harland and Wolf would maintain warships. So okay. you only have to look at that time that they were thinking that eventually Europe would go to war. Yeah. So everyone was anticipating a war of some kind. Yeah, um, it was getting to the stage where tensions were high. You had land grabs in Africa for yeah. um, empires uh, from all of the big European powers and Germany being um, becoming a unified country was late to the party and wanted to have a piece of that as well. Right. So tensions were definitely escalating, certainly in the early years of the 20th century. Um, in both, And that's eventually as well what stopped civil war in Ireland at the time, because you had home rule was coming to Ireland. Ireland was going to become, have its own parliament. The North didn't want it because they, they were prosperous with their industry, shipbuilding and linen. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the south was very much more agricultural, so there were lots more farming, and they were worried that that wealth that they had accumulated was going to be swallowed up, and they weren't going to be so prosperous. So, sure. you know, the north was preparing to defend itself. You had the formation of the Ulster, uh, Ulster Volunteer Force, and they were willing to take arms to be able to make sure that they stayed part of Britain. And the outbreak of war in 1914 and then its eventual end in 1918, could have stopped that potential civil war because both sides of the argument said, we'll, we'll join this war. And they fought in 1916 at the uh, Battle of the Somme, uh, most notably. So, yeah, it was almost a, that almost sort of broke the peace for the time being. Yeesh. Imagine your uh, argument being quashed temporarily by just a bigger argument. Absolutely. And... You know, I'm fairly certain that assurances would have been made as well that, you know, if you come and help us with this war, then we will reward you in some way. Right. So you can pick this up later. Yes. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll just put that to the side for now and we'll deal with bigger problems, as it were. Yeah. Got to defend Ireland first or there won't be an Ireland to split. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It. 
It's really complicated because it's hard to discuss sort of an isolated incident like the Titanic without understanding all the, um, what really was happening around it because Titanic was only sort of a small drop in the events that sort of were happening at the time. It gained significance, but then, you know, all of a sudden there's a big war, which is a huge deal. Yeah. I also think that's why Titanic means so much to these workers as well, because it was such a tense time and they took such pride in these ships. Um, You know, even at a launch, a hundred thousand people came to attend in May, 1911. So there was a great pride. And like I said, there's a massive sense of loss and embarrassment, I think, as well, that came out of the disaster. Um, but, you know, there's still that pride. People still say, you know, we were going, uh, we went on a tour around the city and uh, on one of the buses, and they said, uh, one, of the most thing, uh, one of the things that Belfast is most famous for is Titanic. So there's still that pride in her today. Um, and I think, you know, that's why they label her the ship of dreams, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. Why was that? Do, I don't know if you know, this is probably an unanswerable question, but why was that title given to tan, to Titanic and not to Olympic, who was the first of the trio launched? That just occurred to me. I don't know. And I've only ever sort of seen her labeled the ship of dreams when it came to the movie as well. You know, that opening oh, line okay. in the rose. Um, Whenever I look into it, it's always that first hit in Google is the quote from Rose saying she was the chip of dreams and she was. That's um, fair. That might be something that we're sort of Man- Mandela affecting backwards into things. But I mean, I, I certainly think, you know, there was a lot of hope for her because Belfast was such a difficult place to live at that time. Um, so, I mean, who knows? I might find something just happen to read it every now just randomly but that's the only sort of link I can find to that title at the moment I see her mostly referred to in like posters and things I find of the past as the queen of the Atlantic or the queen of the ocean yeah um, that's that was certainly sort of the marketing tool that they used um she was the queen of the call, ocean what do they call Olympic then when she launched I've not does seen... nobody care because she didn't sink no no I don't I've not seen all I've seen is that she was just the largest ship at that time oh. and she was until Titanic came along. Um I wonder if they needed to come up with a branding scheme for Titanic because Olympic was the largest ship. You couldn't couldn't award a duplicate title. I'm I'm just speculating wildly at this point for the fun of it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, hopefully somebody that listens might know the answer. And if so, oh, please, be fun. Please, please let us know. But uh, yeah, I um I certainly think um pressed heavily as well with her and um, you know and up until her maiden voyage they still hadn't sold tickets they had to announce that captain smith was going to take charge of her to be able to sell remaining tickets and even then they didn't sell them all no no even then and uh, it didn't help with the coal strike that was going on at the time um can we get into the coal strike a bit do you know a little bit about that yeah uh no a little bit about it so okay that's probably more than me i just know that there was a coal strike and that's kind of the extent of my knowledge yeah a lot of the coal that was used on Titanic came from Wales and okay. the coal mines um, went on strike and um, refused to carry on mining, to which they then had to send in the British Army to put down the strikes and to get them back to work. And it was it was a difficult time. It was Winston Churchill, who would then go on to be famous Prime Minister, was in charge at the time of sending the military in and it didn't help him with his cause at that time no uh, he was already unpopular in ireland as well because wow. he'd come over in january he was particularly unpopular in the north so he'd come over in january at the ad uh the invite of william Perry, who was in charge of harland and wolf right to give a speech on why home rule was going to benefit the north to which he was then chased out of belfast um <laughs> so he was it wasn't a popular figure at that time. So any of the coal that they could have was then transported from other ships to be able to, for Titanic to have a maiden voyage. Sure. So the Solent and Southampton home, Southampton port was full of all these empty ships. So the New York was empty. Right. And I think because she would have been sat there laden with coal, that was why it was so easy where they almost had the collision when she was, uh, when Titanic was leaving port as well. There were so, just ships waiting. Yeah. She just had to, um, so she had a 
difficult navigation out of Southampton Harbour uh, because of all these dormant ships. That makes sense to me. I mean, it's way... There's a reason that you take people learning how to drive to an empty parking lot and not to, you know, Trader Joe's on a weekend. Which is an American grocery store that has amazing food and the worst parking lots ever. I think when they scout out locations, they specifically send people who are like, yeah, it has a terrible parking lot. It's great. Perfect. Yeah, and yeah, the size of it as well. So it would have been a difficult navigation. Um, but then I think the cold strike, about 10 days, I think it delayed her maiden voyage by. And that could have made all the difference as well with the moving ice packs as well. So it's it has all this knock-on effect. But, um, you know, it's the same with Olympic returning to Belfast to be repaired after a collision with HMS Hawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know that story? Uh, I know the the brief about it but i'm again please tell us because i'm sure that you know way more details than anyone that i've ever discussed as olympic was returning to port because of the power of the propellers um she drags hms hawk which was one of the british naval ships into her side and at that time british naval ships had a ram below water level on their bow so as they collided it then bent olympics keel out of place and i think two of the watertight compartments were flooded so she managed to limp back to Belfast, staying afloat. And that's why they were so confident with Titanic that they saw that Olympic could survive a collision like that and still stay afloat. Mm. That then put further, um, what do I say, further spotlight on the fact that she was unsinkable. Um, right. And then, so they had to use a lot of the materials that they were using to finish off Titanic's construction to re- repair Olympic. So that sure. then set back her completion for a few days before then being compiled with the coal strike. <laughs> all, all good signs. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even up until the 4th of April when she got into Southampton, they were still finishing off things like paintwork on board. So, I, I just feel like, and maybe this is 2023 privilege when it's way easier to travel and book, but I think I would wait for the ship to be done. Like, done... But different times, different circumstances. I think, yeah, and you look at the amount of tickets that they'd sold by that point, that was certainly a pressure to get her finished. Um, sure. So much so that they had the flowers kept in the uh, in the fridge and they put out uh, brought out fresh flowers as soon as they could to mask the smell of the varnish in the banks as passengers came on board. Ugh, listen, we've all been part of a rush job before. Yes, but I think, <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it was all just these compiling factors that eventually just meant that wrong timing with the moving ice pack as well. I think it was everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Yeah, it as the book uh, there is a book series titled appropriately a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, this is that too. Yes, and uh, you know who knows what would have happened. I mean, you can only just say that this could have happened, but I think it's certainly compounded with the led to the wrong timing yeah ultimately the collision yeah there's still a lot of controversy about everything actually related to titanic i don't even know why i started that sentence that way because that's such an open-ended sentence but there's a lot of controversy about two two things related to sort of the construction one was if it had hit the iceberg in a different way the construction of the ship was built in such a way that it would be able to like deal with that kind of hit. And most people say if it just hit it head on, the bow is in such a way that it would be able to, de- to X, Y, Z deal with, it would be okay. And another thing that people uh, point out is something that literally just went completely out of my head. So I'm going to hope that that comes back and let you address that first point. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the bulkheads would have worked. We've seen it with Olympic, but you know, right. she could collide almost head on with something, she was able to stay afloat. But I think it was just the fact that this, when she collided, it was a 250 foot gash punched in like Morse code. And, and that's just too much. I think it was too many compartments that were breached by that gash. 
you know, it's almost a quarter of the length of the ship. So by that time, you're going to have, it's going to be too much pressure. When you say it in that perspective, it's almost a quarter of the ship. That's a normal, that's a basically insurmountable percentage. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, with you look at the amount of water that she took on as well initially after the collision and they had the pumps, the pumps were able to pump out maybe a tenth of what they were taking in a minute. Um, yeah. So they weren't designed for that. Um, That's that was going to be my my the the lead in for that or the lead out for that was basically that when people design ships and I mean even today modern cruise ships you don't design them to be colliding with things constantly they're not designed to withstand I mean they're not specifically designed I think I should say to withstand head on collisions because I guess you're just not expecting to be driving these ships sailing these ships just directly into things. Certainly, there was an incentive as well to ensure that there wasn't any damage. So Captain Smith would have had a, 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 uh, I suppose, a bonus for every ship that he returned to port that was unscathed. Um, Happen to think that that's hilarious when said out loud, but it makes sense. Yes, and you know, and he was very proud of that as well. Because the precursor Mm. of that was in an interview with the New York Times in 1907, and he said, uh, "When anybody." Asking my nearly 40 years experience at sea, I merely say uneventful. I've never been in a collision or accident worth speaking of. And Why did he team, say that? Exactly that. And in the five following years, he would have a collision with HMS Hawk and Titanic. That's right, because he was um, piloting Olympic at the time. He was, yeah. He was, um, he was on the return leg as well with Olympic prior to his sail with Titanic. So, uh, yeah, he was certainly... Um, a key notable figure within the white star line well as he himself said up until x a point there'd never been um an issue no and um i think as well you know you have everything else that went wrong with the keys of the binocular cabinet being taken away in the uh, in the in the confusion of crew being moved over to olympic and a change of crew on titanic so yeah. it's things like that that were out of their control as well on board. Um, Officer Henry Wilde was transferred on to Titanic, I believe, from Olympic um, as chief officer, which pushed down Murdoch and Lightoller and pushed out, I believe it was Bla- Blair? Yes. Bla- David Blair. Yes, I believe it was, yeah. And uh, ironically, you know, you go around the um, Titanic Belfast now when they've had their new gallery revamp and you see the set of keys that were walked off with with the uh, with the keyring with the binocular cabinet I'm sorry that's not actually funny but it's you look at that and you think something as small as those small bunch of keys had such a devastating effect I kind of personally am of the belief that I don't think the binoculars would have helped and I say this as someone who has tried to use binoculars in the dark you need light. Uh, you know, modern ones may have, you know, lights projecting or some sort of backlighting to help with seeing close-up objects, but especially the binoculars that I had when I was a kid, there was no lighting. If there was no external lighting, you couldn't see anything. You just saw darkness, and then you put the binoculars on, and it was much closer darkness. So yeah. that's my personal argument, but I'm also fully aware that I could be completely wrong, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't. You, but They might have been able to see it soon enough just sure. to be able to navigate sooner. Uh, you just don't know. Again, it's that right. if or but. It's, um, and that compiled with, I think we spoke about it last time, with the mirage. And yes. the change in temperature, distorting images. So making things seem further away than they were. Um, that doesn't help either. Nothing really does in that kind of situation, unless it is something like a miracle light. Yes. And, you know, that's then what led to the reform in, shipping regulations afterwards it had to take a disaster like titanics to have an impact it's kind of always how it you know works though i don't remember the exact quote from and or who it's from but it was something along the lines of every rule every safety rule and regulation we have is written in somebody's blood and it's 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 depressing to think about but it's true yeah and you know you think about the impacts that the titanic disaster did have um at that time wireless operators weren't expected to be manning their stations for 24 hours a day. Um, And 
certainly in Britain, border trade regulations so is basing the number of lifeboats off of tonnage rather than capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, although Titanic had, was it 22 lifeboats? Was it? Yeah, 22, I think. Um, nowhere near enough. Yeah. Um, and drills weren't mandatory either. So right. you had the cancelled drill um, that morning of the 14th. And that then led to the chaos and the confusion when it was all going wrong. Do you remember how easy it was in the year 2000 to board a plane? No, I'm... (laughs) Well, I was pretty young then too, but you didn't have to take your shoes off. You didn't have to walk through the metal detectors and do all the... You didn't have to take the this out of the that and put the end of this thing and, you know... All of this secure, all of these security measures, TSA, everything came out of 9-11. And, you know, a lot of it is security theater. And I happen to think a lot of it is more prohibitive than not. However, they needed to to do something demonstrably against terrorism. The the people of the United States were not going to stand for nothing being done, even if all the research had shown that, like, Actually, if we do nothing, it's better because terrorists were probably not going to come back the same way if we double down on the security. But that would have been unacceptable. Like people would have felt unsafe. So sometimes it's about this almost performative thing. However, in the case of something like Titanic, it's almost the opposite. Yeah. And I think as well, I mean, any risk assessment you make you also expect the worst case scenario don't you to be able to account for it and yeah. that was what orig- the original draftsman had in mind the um william perry's brother-in-law alexander carlisle mm-hmm. he uh, made provisions for ma- uh, many more lifeboats but that was then scrapped by william perry and the board of trade because he said you're already in excess of what is required mm-hmm. um and Allegedly, that was what led to his departure from Harlan and Wolf. It's a little ironic to look back and see someone who clearly was a a visionary at the time who was thinking, you know, the regulations are outdated. Just because they're outdated doesn't mean we need to be. We could make a change. And there was that naivety as well, though, I think, with the bulkheads. You know, like you say, you see that Olympic was able to limp back after her collision. People genuinely thought that she was unsinkable. You, it, the more times you do something, the less dangerous it seems. Or the more times you see something do something, the less risky it seems. Yeah, and I think as well, I mean, you look at the build quality, I mean, cause everybody talks about faulty rivets mm-hmm. and everything else being a factor, but I don't think you can, you can't make that claim because you look at the Olympic, you look at the build quality there, and I think you also look at the prestige of the White Star Line. They would never have spent money on a ship that wasn't up to their standards. Yeah, we were just talking about that at the very beginning, how they were proud of the attention to detail. Absolutely. And Harland and Wolf wouldn't either. I mean, Harland and Wolf were labelled shipbuilders to the world. They were mm-hmm. um, leading design in uh, leading in ship design and they wouldn't have cut shortcuts either, uh, you know. And you have the, you think about the money that it was costing them to build these ships. It would have to As cost them again to, to write them. So mm-hmm. there's no way that they'd ever cut corners. It's also far more difficult to make changes than it is to simply do something right the first time, because if you have some complicated, some sorry, some easy changes are probably easier to navigate. But you have to do something that requires, say, taking apart an entire section of the ship that gets not only costly in time, but exceptionally costly in, you know, money, materials and labor. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you think about the contracts as well that Harland Wolf had at that time. So they weren't just building ships for the White Star Line, but they were building ships for everybody. And they were building British naval ships as well, again, in anticipation for war. So they had quite a lot of outlay. And especially as the company grew as well, I mean, even in the early years when they were first starting out, 
they used to make so much money that when there was a financial slump, they used to do account customers where they used to loan the money and then they'd pay it off in installments and then pay it finally off when the ship was completed. And this loan system carried on. I mean, even up until with the White Star Line, they had the agreement that it was an unwritten contract, but it was cost plus 5%. So it used to be whatever it cost to build the ship plus then 5% profit for hauling them all. So there was going to be, there was a lot of money exchanging hands. And like I said, you know, seven and a half million pounds on a ship in 1912 was... 220 some million. Yeah. It's, I think it just goes back to the need and want to find something solid to blame when something happens. You know, again, with the discuss about security theater, it's like, you, we have to do something something must be to blame it's because we didn't have any security at the airports if we had only had security at the airports this never would have happened it's like aha this is the solution and it makes people feel better and when you're unable to explain something like uh, hurricane katrina when it devastated new orleans there's no explanation for that it was a it was a storm no one made it no and i think as well you know it's it's that notion, isn't it? It's either something or someone to blame. Like Correct. putting the blame onto Captain Smith or um, the crew of the Californian as well. Or Ismay. Yeah, Ismay as well. Um, and everybody looked just for somebody to pin it on. And, okay, yes, while there was human error there, it was also just a freak accident of unfortunate timing. Yeah. And that, to put it lightly, that sucks. It is. Um, I mean, you know, you have to look at the implications that it had on families. I mean, of course, many people lost their main income from the house. And I don't think we discussed that nearly enough. No, no. And um, I mean, you have cases of families being told by the White Star Line that they could go over to Halifax to retrieve the bodies and they get to New York. They're then told that they've got no financial support. They return to Southampton and they've lost their houses. Yeah, That happened to one family in particular where their house was foreclosed. They had no money coming in. Uh, you then have the survivors fund, which helped. But there was no nowhere near enough support. No. And I think that's part of the story that's also taken for granted a lot is the aftermath of the people that were ripple affected involved the you know as i think there's a book entitled you know the widow the widows of titanic you know all the people left behind the children and the women and this wasn't again 2023 you can't wander in a target and say give me a job you know many in many places women were prohibited from working there were a lot of places that simply wouldn't hire women and there were very few professions that were open to women and the ones that were were sort of low paying domestic style labor and you know for and you see that a lot with the steerage women you know those were their main professions that was what was available it was you was to become a working class woman you couldn't really there were so few opportunities to be like a high level governess or an instructor for I don't know, some rich boarding school. Yeah, and I mean, this was particularly as well the case up in Northern Ireland. I mean, you were very lucky if you were able to get an office job in Harland and Wolf working as a secretary. Yeah. Most women were employed in the linen mills. Mm-hmm. Where it was difficult days and um, wading around in water. So, yeah. Not was- too long before the Titanic here in the United States was the extremely infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that a lot of women died in because, you know, it was a textile factory. A lot of women worked there. They just didn't have fire exits. So when the building caught fire, people couldn't get out. It was horrifying. And it left behind a lot of children. That's it. And, yeah, and the size of the families as well. You know, you had families that had have potentially six or eight children. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of Catholic. Yeah, no birth control. No. So you had then have who's going to look after the children if the mother goes to work. There was no provisions. Harland uh, and Wolf supported families where they could. But sure. again, it was nowhere near enough support that was needed. 
I think unfortunately the the worst probably happened to a lot of those families that probably lost you know children or parents to dangerous work or starvation or just illness you basic illness you couldn't treat a cut that turned septic can't afford a doctor no um, i mean you already had prior to this the mass migration from ireland anyway with the famine um, right speaking so, of circumstances that i forgot about so you know that loss of income and it drove people out you know they came to Britain or they looked to go to america yeah Hence why there was a need for ships like Titanic. Mm -hmm. It's that sort of, uh, not paradox, but, you know, a lot of people, you know, you look at people in a dismal situation living in a town that's falling apart around them and say, oh, why don't you move? They can't afford to. No. Um, You know, you'd be very fortunate if you could afford to just uproot something. Uh You had one case in particular on board Titanic, you had the Adagal 14. Oh, God, that's such a sad story. Absolutely, yeah. 14 from one small village in County Mayo. Um, I think it was 11 of them didn't survive the crossing, three survived. And it was a village of 91 people. Right. Um, so it was a community that was hit hard. And that's... And that was just so many of their people. And some, and you know, not all of them, but you know, there were people that were striking out for better opportunities, some of which were probably planning on either sending money home from a new job or establishing a route to bring the family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you had people that would go on, lots of men would go on ahead to try and mm-hmm. see if they could get a job in New York or anywhere in America and be ready for the rest of the family to come out to join them. Yeah, and it just, I think that that's the thing that we're talking about more, which is, you know, there's been a lot of focus on first-class passengers, which is not to say that they're, you know, oh, those people, let's ignore them. But there was less of a focus on exactly how many of the people in like second class and third class were making full life-changing moves you know transatlantic travel for them wasn't a thing you did once a year to go get your wardrobe in paris it was a thing you did once maybe twice in a lifetime if you were unlucky enough to have to go home for some reason but for many people they were i'm never seeing my home country again this I'm good. This is goodbye for real. That's it. And you know, a lot of these tickets. I mean, seven pound for a third class ticket. That was a lot of savings for third class passengers at yeah. the time. Um, and it was a big risk because there was no guarantee that they were going to find something out in New York as well when they got there. People who had guaranteed jobs were lucky. You know, something that a relative had set up. You know. I'm going to go be a maid in this house because my aunt is the governess for that house and found out that they need a maid. And that's why I'm getting to go. And that was, that was very lucky that you had a job there that someone had found something for you. Yeah. And that was a case with some of the Adigal 14. Um, that's actually who I was using as an example. Yeah. So yeah, you have, yeah. You have the cousin that comes back to say, look, this is what I've got. Come and join me. Um, and yeah, you're right. There was a very fortunate position to be in. Um, a lot of them just felt that they couldn't carry on in England or in Ireland. Things were bad. I mean, even prior to um, Titanic's build in 1907, you have a docker strike in Belfast. It was riled up because of working conditions. And sure. Eventually, they just is. The strike had stopped when people said you can either come back to work and earn some money or you can just carry on without being paid. So there were no changes. Um, And it was the same, again, even earlier, back into the early 1840s into 1850s, um, when Edward Harland was then drafted into Robert Hickson's firm before he then purchased it to form Harland and Wolf. Um, Work wasn't being completed, so he dropped pay and and said that the quality needs to be better. So workers went on strike. So instead of uh, the firm closing, he drafted in workers from Scotland who were quite happy to come down, get paid and do the job. And the original workers then said, fine, okay, we'll carry on and do what you need us to do. Great. 
And I, uh, that's, that's how negotiations are still going 111 years later. <laughs> Everybody's always happy to do a job that you don't want to do. So it's, well, there's always someone out there who's desperate for money. And that's not a, that's not, you know, ribbing those people. I'm sure that those men in Scotland who took those jobs were like, I can feed my family, sign me up. Absolutely. Yeah. And by that point as well, you'd already had experienced shipbuilders up in Scotland. So, yeah. I mean, the first few ships that were being built in Belfast dated back to the 1600s, but it was a lot earlier in Scotland. So you already had that expertise coming over um, and that uh, reputation. So, and they need people. <laughs> that's it. So, yeah. And it's not a long way to travel either. It's not far from Northern Ireland to Scotland. That's fair. A couple hours, maybe, by train. It would have been boat trip. Um, boat. Sorry. Yeah, but, I don't I mean, know anything it, about the, geography. No, but as the, I mean, it's at one point, to, so from one from the north coast of Northern Ireland to, where are we there? west coast of scotland as the crow flies it could be 12 miles so it's not very far to travel at all not at all that's actually a reasonable that's not saying goodbye to your family forever that's saying goodbye to your family for a little while absolutely and um i mean and it dates back so even earlier than that i mean you have um the british crown in the 1600s to be able to keep control of islands they were using people from lowland scotland and planting them in Ulster uh, into the north to be able to keep everybody happy and keep everybody towards the crown to anglicise it and to make it everybody on their side. Um, that was known as the Ulster Plantations. Mm. So there's always been that connection with Ulster in Scotland. Right. It's just interesting to think about how many factors there are that around one particular time. And I mean, I'm sure you could pick any moment in history and then just really look at how intricately woven the fabric of society around the world was at the time. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, I think that's um, that's still what has an impact today. I mean, you still have the calls for a united island with the North still wanting to remain part of Britain. And I think it's still that connection that still dates back from those plantations. Um, and it's going to be a long-standing uh argument i think I, I don't know there's never a clear and easy route to solve it as someone who lives in a country that also has a split north and south i empathize yeah and it's i think it's interesting seeing it from my from an outside perspective as well um oh and, to be an outsider to this yeah it's 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 hard to put into words until you sort of, you see what it's like. I mean, in the lasting effects that the conflicts have had as well over the decades. Yeah, it's um, it's not good. <laughs> no, it's not good for a country to be divided, especially over things that you can solve. If they're literally irreconcilable, dif- reconcilable differences, such as the North of Country X would really like to boil people alive and serve them as soup to international clients and the people of the South are like, we're not going to do that. I think that's a reason to keep a country divided, my opinion. But no, we're just fighting ourselves over whether or not certain people deserve to have human rights. And I just think that's a waste of time. If you're a human, you deserve human rights. I think it's implied in the title. Human, human yeah, and I mean, even when uh, the differences were there, I mean, you have in 1912, uh, in September 1912, you have the signing of the Ulster Covenant, mm-hmm. uh, which was established by a guy called uh, Edward Carson, who's a famous barrister who presided over the trial of Oscar Wilde and made a name for himself then, promoting um, loyalism to the United Kingdom. And uh, you have hundreds of thousands of signatures in the first few days um people literally signing it in their own blood to say that they wanted Ulster to remain part of the united kingdom um, and when the split did happen he was offered nine counties in the north um three of which were catholic uh majority and he basically turned around and said i don't want to deal with that i'll just take the protestant ones <laughs> and that was the long and short of it, is that 
it was too difficult of a situation to be. I mean, you look at Harland and Wolf, the majority of the workforce. So 15,000 were employed in 1912 and one in eight were Catholic. So you have almost 2,000. Uh, and where you have a guy like William Peary who turns around and openly states that I'll never knowingly employ a Catholic man. So there was a lot of divide there and there was a lot of haves and haves not. Um, there were very few skilled workers in Harland and Wolf as well. I mean, you have one that was a cabinet maker. Wow. Um, but it was very rare that yeah. the Catholic workers would have the skilled jobs. And that was a true for all industry in the North at that time. Mm. Yeah, the Catholic versus Protestant uh, tensions were legendary. Yes, and um, I think the slander that was against, or I mean, you have uh, slogans being bandied about like home rule is Rome rule. So, you know, if we're going to have home rule, we're going to be ruled by ruled by the Pope. Um, and uh, that's that doesn't help. It's not uh, really. No. Um, and particularly in uh, the late 1800s as well, you have Winston Churchill's father, he gave a famous speech that said, uh, where he said, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. So it's, it dates, it's a long standing conflict. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, certainly, that religious divide was there. Um, and I mean, you still see it today. You still have the communities in Belfast where you've got the Catholic community into the Protestant-dominated community. Hmm. Uh, so much so where you can see, you can tell which areas are which because the road signs have the names written in English and in Gaelic for the Catholics. Great. Um, so that divide is still there. And I have I have heard that. I mean, I've not been to Ireland myself, so I can't really make a bunch of statements. But yeah, I know this for sure. But I have heard that. Yeah, and it's um, and I think everybody's right to have their own views, traditions. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting, like I say, outwardly look, outwardly looking inward. It's uh, it's interesting to see that divide. Yeah. Well, Ben, any last facts or thoughts you have for us, for me, before I wait a few more months before dragging it back on here a third time? Don't think there's anything at the moment, but no. <laughs> Thank you again for having me on. Thanks for coming back. I always enjoy, as as I brought up a thousand times during this, I always enjoy learning the circumstances of the event that I discussed. I don't do a lot of research into that. I should. I always say I should do more, and I always say I will try to, and then I never do. But do other learning so thank you for coming on and sharing uh all of your knowledge with everyone once again thank you very much titanic talkline was created and produced by me alexia be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at titanic talkline on facebook instagram and twitter that is all one word titanic talkline t-i-t-a-n-i-c t-a-l-k-l-i-n-e if you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!